Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. I can think of a few phrases that I remember my parents saying repeatedly over the course of my childhood, and blessedly, very few of them had four-letter words in them, except for the time I foolishly backed my dad's van into our neighbor's car, or the time I didn't lock up my car one night after being reminded repeatedly and my car's aftermarket CD player was stolen. Certain phrases, however, certain combinations of words stick in my mind. Certain things which, spoken even now, trigger memories of hearing my parents saying it to me as a six-year-old or a nine-year-old or a 16-year-old and so on. Maybe you have some, a few words or a phrase or a proverb, something you remember your parents saying often that you associate with them in a personal way. One of those words that comes down to me from my mother is this word consequences. Now, some of you in the Monday night Bible study might think that the word consequences is a rather harsh word to associate with a woman as mellow and benevolent as Terry Novak. But you all didn't know her when she was 50 and still putting up with the shenanigans of my middle school self 15 years after she'd already went through it with my three older siblings. You've got to think about the consequences, Joey. She'd say to me after any number of encounters with a foolish act of disobedience or irresponsibility, and most of the time she would mean that I need to think about the natural consequences, the outcomes that would transpire as a direct result of the thing that I did. Forget to turn in your math homework. The natural consequence, of course, is your grade suffers. Ignore your mother's instruction to not climb on the stone wall in the backyard. The natural consequence, when you slip and fall and slice your leg open on the edge of the rock, natural consequences. But sometimes... Oftentimes, she'd be warning me that in addition 
to whatever natural consequences might follow, there would also be the possibility or maybe even the guarantee of artificial consequences. Those imposed upon the offender by the judge and jury of our household, my parents. Whether it was being grounded or having something precious taken away or being denied an opportunity for something fun or one of several mild forms of corporal punishment administered by a parent, sometimes there were artificial consequences designed to reinforce the rules of the household. They functioned as reminders of my parents' expectations for our behavior. Consequences. Even saying that word now takes me back to the times when my childhood sins were revealed and I had to face the music of what I had done. There are always consequences, my mother would say. You've got to think about the consequences. And I think that what Terry meant was that in some way, to some degree, the actions that I took and that we take do not happen in a vacuum. They do not happen without weight or impact. There are always consequences. Jesus stood in the synagogue of his childhood where he was introduced to the ancient stories of creation and captivity, of exodus and exile, of kings and covenants, of prophets and promises. It was in that synagogue that Jesus eventually came to sense that he had a particular role to play in God's great drama of salvation. This synagogue was Jesus's spiritual home. And on this particular Sabbath day, Jesus is invited to read from the Hebrew scriptures and preach. Last week we heard him reading from the scroll and delivering a rather brief homily. He's 30, freshly baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah. He preaches a brief sermon and sits down. And today we learn of the consequences. And at first, if you've got your text handy in, this, in, the, in your packet, you can look at verse 22. All spoke well of him, and all were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? Well, maybe the previous teachers and scribes were a bit dry in their delivery. Maybe they lacked some powerful illustrations. Maybe they just didn't connect with the farming crowd in Nazareth. I don't know. But when these folks heard Jesus, they adored his delivery. The gracious way his words just tumbled out. He was a good orator. And the crowd was enthralled. And one of the people there whispered, who is this guy? Joseph's boy. Joseph, the carpenter? Yeah, that's his son. Really? I preached my first sermon when I was 16 years old, church. It was Youth Sunday. Usually, the honor went to a senior, but none of the seniors could be persuaded to give the sermon, and none of the juniors could either, so it fell to me, sophomore. I was nervous. I studied I outlined, I practiced, I revised, I edited, I practiced, I practiced, I practiced for weeks. 
In the Baptist tradition I grew up in, we didn't use full manuscripts, so I had to do with note cards with just main ideas printed on them. The theme I was given was God's grace. My text was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, read correctly from the King James. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man, sorry, should boast. Now, sermons in my church averaged about 55 minutes long, tested the, abil the preacher's ability to navigate smoothly and seamlessly from one part of Scripture to another. I had 16 years of experience listening to sermons, but I'd never actually delivered one. My older siblings had driven in town to hear me preach. My parents were there in their usual pew. My friends were sitting in the front row of the balcony up high, goofing off. And I was trembling sitting in the choir loft. I couldn't stop my leg from shaking. That sort of fight or fight flight adrenaline was coursing through my veins as I heard the, the frightening amen from the congregation as all eyes turned expectantly to the 16-year-old preacher walking to a large wooden pulpit. I must have been Presbyterian because I only preached 27 minutes. <laughs> when it was over, I felt a great weight lifted off of my shoulders as if I had been carrying a backpack filled with concrete. It was over, I said. I'll never doing that again, I said. My father nodded proudly to me from his pew. My sister waved at me, and I sat down. And when the service was over, I stood next to the pastor in the rear of the sanctuary and greeted the congregation as they exited. But I noticed something strange. A lot of people were surrounding my parents, clapping my dad on the back and giving my mom a hug and telling them what a great job they did raising me up. I heard my dad jokingly say, I always knew he'd do all right. He takes after me. That's my son, after all. And my mother silently received the praise of their friends. That was Al Novak's boy preached today, I heard a congregant say in the hallway. Oh, yeah? Another replied, yeah, can't you tell? He looks just like his dad. First sermons, hometown churches. Jesus shows up in his hometown, and the people still knew him there merely as Joseph's boy. He had just read a powerful word of scripture and then pronounced that the words had been fulfilled and made complete and now were fully realized in their very presence, but their response initially is to, ooh, and ah, and aw, at the six-year-old Jesus that they had crystallized in their memory. Maybe some of them listened. Maybe some of them thought, hey, what if our little Jesus is God's Messiah? I wonder what sort of fringe benefit we might get. Like, we practically raised him. Or maybe they heard Jesus say things like, I've come to announce good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, and they assumed that that meant them first and only. They'd obviously heard about some of the things Jesus could do, healing, curing, preaching. And I think that they assumed that now Jesus is home, 
those benefits would be shared among the people of Nazareth. So they tried to mentally calculate what sort of benefits they would receive having known Jesus since he was just that high. But Jesus isn't satisfied by any of this. And now, church, we're going to see Jesus do what every preacher dreads doing. Jesus is now going to explain his sermon to the people. See, sermons are nice when they're just in the abstract, just in the idealized realm of possibility. But when they at times confront the nitty-gritty, down-to-earth topics like how we vote, how we spend our money, how we read the news, how we use our time, how we think of our neighbors, how we love even our enemies. Well, now, preacher, hang on a second. Don't you lecture me. Just keep it light and funny. After all, they might have thought about Jesus. What do you know about all this stuff? You're 30. You're just the kid who grew up here. We know your parents. So Jesus, the 30-year-old, perhaps sensing a bit of what I sensed when I was 16, sensing that the congregation in Nazareth had begun to over-sentimentalize his sermon, he goes ahead and he interprets them for them. He says, doubtless you're going to say to me this, doctor, cure yourself, and you'll say, do here in your hometown the things we heard you do at Capernaum. In other words, Jesus says, you've heard what I did elsewhere, and now you want me to do the same thing here. You think that you are entitled to these displays of God's blessing on account of the fact that you knew me back when. Jesus says, you assume that if God is going to act, it's going to be here first. But the problem with hometowns, Jesus says, is that they often disregard the truth spoken to them by their own. Jesus puts it this way in verse 24, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. The band, The Head and the Heart, captured this hometown friction in their 2011 song, Ghosts, where they sing these words. Is it any wonder why we all leave home? People say, I knew you when you were six years old, but you say, I've changed, I've changed, I've changed, I've changed, I've changed. We're often begging for a fresh listen from the people who have known us the longest and who struggle to see who we are now compared to who we were back when. Jesus goes on. He says, I tell you the truth. You remember Elijah and the great drought and the great famine? Well, there were many widows right here in Israel at that time. There were many widows here. But God sent Elijah out of Israel to a Gentile town to minister to a Gentile widow. Or, Jesus says, you remember Elisha? In his day, many in Israel suffered from leprosy or skin disease, yet Elisha wasn't sent to anybody in Israel but to the general of the enemy army instead. In other words, Jesus says, you're reading the Bible backwards. You think that the promises of God's great blessings and hearings and restoration and salvation have all the arrows pointed in on yourself, on Israel. He says, you assume that my mission as God's Messiah is just about here, our people, our, our cities, our nation. Spoiler alert, Jesus says, it isn't. 
It's for those on the outside, those pressed to the outer edges, those who are easily ignored by the conventionally religious. It's not ultimately about you, Jesus says. And then the text says, at least in my translation, Jesus dropped the mic. There's a story told of a church that was celebrating its homecoming Sunday on an important anniversary date. They had invited former pastors and members. They threw a huge party for a whole weekend, and at the church service on Sunday, they invited Larry to preach. Larry had been born to two church members. He was baptized as an infant, raised in the Sunday school, went through the youth group, attended college, came home on weekends to attend worship, and was married in the church sanctuary. Following college, Larry even attended seminary and joined the ministry serving in a neighboring town. And on this particular homecoming Sunday, Larry came home and everyone was excited. Larry was well known for his preaching and his delivery. He was respected by the elders of the church. He was loved by the children. And Larry came to his hometown, to his home church, and he stood up and pausing for a moment, he began to read from all over the scriptures about how the people of God were to be found defending the cause of the immigrant and the orphan and the widow. He delivered a scathing reprisal of the many ways this particular church had supported protests against buses filled with orphan Guatemalan children. How church members sitting in the pews that Sunday had stood along the road holding guns and signs and said, go home, we don't want you here. And for 20 minutes, Larry interpreted the scriptures as a stinging rebuke of the many things this particular congregation had done in their recent history. And then he sat down. And they, being nice Midwestern Protestants, didn't try to kill him. But the anger-filled silence was deafening nonetheless. Jesus finished. And when he did, the text says, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. And moving like only a violent mob can move, they forced Jesus out. They maneuvered him on the roadways until his back was to the cliff, and with their eyes filled with rage and anger at, the, at his words and his interpretation of Scripture, the text says they were going to hurl him off the cliff. But somehow he passes through their midst and goes on his way. And so Jesus, the prophetic Messiah, whose hometown sermon about who would ultimately benefit from his work was rejected, he passes through the anger of the crowd and goes back on his way to find more open and receptive ears. Sometimes there are consequences to preaching the witness of Scripture. Jesus discovered some of those consequences today. Sometimes the consequences are good with people hearing God's word in fresh ways and even being convicted and led to repentance and, and a decision to submit their lives again to the will of God expressed in Scripture. But other times, the people conspire together to try to kill the preacher or at least run him or her out of town. It's no wonder the prophet Jeremiah was terrified of the call of God to preach. Do you remember our first reading today? The Lord said to Jeremiah, Look, before I created you, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart to preach. And Jeremiah says, Hang on a minute. I don't know how to speak. I'm just a kid. 
It's as if he says, wait, Lord, these people are older than me. They're bigger than me. They're stronger than me. They will hate me if I preach this to them. I don't know how to do this. And the Lord says, do not say that I'm only a child. Where I send you, you must go. What I tell you, you must say. Do not be afraid of them. I am with you to save you. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, earlier than the reading we heard today, he says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is foolish and disconcerting to the anemically religious. The good news that God's priority, God's mission, is directed first and foremost towards the poor, the marginalized, those unjustly imprisoned, those whom our society has disenfranchised, the minority voices, the orphans, the immigrants, and the widow, this is bad news to those who expect God's attention to be first and foremost on themselves. The good news of the gospel is not that God has promised comfort, ease, and financial abundance, but the truth of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, people are being set free from the guilt of sin. That they are being liberated from oppression, both spiritually and materially. That they are being rescued from the depths of hopelessness. And they are being told over and over and over in words and deeds that they too are beloved children of God whom God loves. The text tells us today the consequences we might expect when this good news is announced, however. It probably won't be warm political applause, nor laudatory blog posts, nor exuberant displays of affection. The crowd in Nazareth was happy until Jesus explained what he meant. Then they tried to kill him. And so one of the consequences of preaching, and all of us here being filled with the Spirit at our baptisms, all of us here are called to preach, whether with our words or with our deeds, one of the consequences to preaching, to living out the good news of the gospel, is that conventionally religious people will become very upset that their spiritual consciences aren't being massaged every Sunday. And as Jesus finds out, sometimes the ardent defenders of the religious status quo will try to get rid of any prophet in their midst by any means necessary. Because it's true. The good news for the poor is bad news for the greedy. The good news for the immigrant is bad news for the xenophobe. The good news for the refugee is bad news for the paranoid. The good news for the oppressed is bad news for the oppressor. The mercy of the gospel is good news for those whose sins are great and known, but terrible news for those who sit at home and judge the sins of others and consider themselves morally superior. And we, like Jeremiah, as Christ's body, have been called to proclaim and enact and live out that good news. We, like Jesus, have been called to proclaim that good news. We, in the love that Paul writes about, have been called to announce the mighty things that God has done and is doing right now in our church, in our city. And so we can take heart 
For as we continue to proclaim the good news that the poor are cherished in God's sight, that the downtrodden are embraced as God's own children, that those without a voice find themselves loved and welcomed, that those who long for justice shall be satisfied, as we continue to announce and testify and witness to the ongoing work of God in our community, we know that God is present with us, empowering us with his spirit and reforging us weekly according to his promises and his word. Sometimes there are consequences to preaching. Jesus learned about those today. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.